This morning we're going to talk about passionate worship. We are now um, in our sixth week as a church, um, but in our fifth week in this series called Devoted. And this morning I'm going to talk about just a, a subject matter that maybe we've, we've talked about before, or maybe you've heard, or uh, maybe it's something that's not brand new to you, but I think um, when we walk away today, hopefully uh, this is a word that will really challenge our hearts um, and, and lead us to a place where we are passionately and authentically pursuing the presence of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so we are in this devoted series. Today we're going to talk about the subject matter of being devoted to passionate worship. Um, in our opening text, Andrew read John chapter 4, verse 23. These are the words of Jesus. This, these words actually come on the heels of when Jesus encountered a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and this was a woman that Jesus had a conversation with, and, and I don't have time to tell you that whole story. Uh, the context of that story simply is uh, Samaritans weren't supposed to associate with Jews, and so uh, Jesus sits down, he starts having this conversation with this woman, and, and really Jesus starts to relay to her everything about her, and then eventually the conversation leads to the subject of worship. And Jesus says this to the woman, But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. And then Jesus says, For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I wanna, I'm going to explain that a little bit this morning. I'm going to share a few stories here in just a moment. But I want to ask these questions as we kind of move into this topic of worship this morning. I want to ask this question. When God looks at me, and I want you to ask this question as well, not just me, but when God looks at us, can he say with confidence, there is one who worships me with passion and with authenticity? You don't have to raise your hand this morning, but I want, you to, I want you to ponder that question for a moment. When God looks at you, when he looks at me, can he say with confidence and, he, and can he declare over us, there is one who worships me with passion and with authenticity. And then I would ask the question about the church as a whole. When God looks at this church, when God looks at us as a congregation as, and as a whole, can he say and can he proclaim over us with confidence and boldness, there is a church that pursues after me, that passionately worships me. To know if this is true, both individually and corporately, we have to understand, we have to know what, what are the qualities, what are the character, characteristics of one who worships Jesus with passion and with authenticity. Uh, I think we could spend a lot of time throwing several different things out, but I want to take a few minutes this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, before I, I really lay out three very important, uh, I think, principles or points that will help us to understand what it looks like to pursue and to worship Christ with passion. I want to tell to you three different stories, all from Scripture, um, they, they come from different contexts. Um, a, a couple of them are, are in the Old Testament, or one's in the Old Testament, two are from the New Testament. But these are stories of, of people in Scripture that, that each of them had a unique encounter with the Lord, and each of them worshipped what I would suggest to you in a very passionate manner. And so I'm going to tell these stories to you this morning. 
And then I'm going to kind of pull back and, and draw some implications from each of them. Uh, and I think these, this, these stories will help us to understand and get a glimpse of what a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ looks like. Uh, the first story comes from Acts chapter 16. Uh, there's two individuals. Paul is one of them. I think most of us are familiar with Paul. The other one is one of his traveling companions by the name of Silas. Paul and Silas are on their second missionary journey, and they are actually in a, in a region that's called Macedonia. Um, and while they are in this region, it says in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they began to travel or began to, to make their journey to a place of prayer. And on their way to this place of prayer, they encountered a slave woman who had this very unique gift. Uh, she, could, um, she could predict the future. Uh, she was a fortune teller. Now, this bode well for the, the masters of this slave woman because they used her uh, to, to gain wealth. Um, they, they used this, this gift. Now, she had a, an evil spirit in her, but she used this gift uh, to be able to gain money for her masters. And, and so when, when Paul and Silas are on their way um, to this place of prayer, they encounter this slave woman who has this, um, this gift to be able to predict the future, and her masters are using her uh, to get money and to gain uh, or to become more rich. And so they're traveling, and it says, it says in Acts chapter 16 that they go back and forth to this place of prayer often. And at one particular time, finally, Paul is kind of fed up because this woman is kind of mocking, uh, mocking Paul and Silas and, and yelling at him, and, and Paul's had enough. And so Paul turns around to this slave woman, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her, and he casts that demon out of that woman. That was great for Paul, but the masters uh, of this slave woman uh, were not very thrilled um, about what just took place because now all of a sudden their, their means to gain wealth had disappeared because this woman no longer had the ability uh, to predict the future or to, to uh, explain the fortune of somebody else. And, and so you know, uh, you can tell pretty quickly that these individuals would have been pretty upset. Um, with Paul and with Silas for casting this, this demon out. They, they were making money, and now all of a sudden they lost their, their means of wealth. And, and so uh, there are several events that unfold in Acts chapter 16, but one of the things that happens, there's actually a mob uh, of people that gather together and they are, are upset and they're frustrated with Paul and Silas. They're, um, they're throwing or they're expressing threats against him and against them. And, and what they eventually end up doing is they will put Paul and Silas in prison. And they're beaten before they're placed in prison. They're ridiculed. They're mocked. And then Paul and Silas are placed in a, in a prison. They're chained to a prison guard. And they are in prison um, for really doing nothing out of the ordinary, but they are put in prison because these people are upset with them. Now, Paul and Silas could have had one of two different responses. Would have been very easy for Paul and Silas to be angry with God. Could have been very easy for Paul and Silas to, to complain and whine and, and be upset because they've been placed in prison. All kinds of different emotions could have come out of that experience for Paul and Silas. We read in Acts chapter 16, instead of complaining, 
instead of banging on the, 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 prison, um, uh, the prison door, instead of being upset and angry with God, the response of Paul and Silas is very unique. In Acts chapter 16, it says at midnight, Paul and Silas began to give thanks to God and they began to sing hymns and praise him while they are chained to the prison guard. They could have had so many different responses. They could have had a pity party. They could have complained. They could have cried. They could have been angry with God. But Paul and Silas, in the midst of a very difficult circumstance, they chose to worship. They chose to express their thanks, their gratitude to the God that they served. In Luke chapter 21, there's another story of um, this poor widow. Um, in Luke chapter 21, there's just three or three or four verses, first four verses of Luke chapter 21 kind of explain uh, this story. And in Luke 21, we see while, while Jesus, and, and Jesus did this often, while he was in the temple, he would oftentimes kind of hide away and he would watch as, as scribes and Pharisees and as people would come by there there was a place in the temple it was actually in, in, in the temple it was called the court of the women and in the court of the women there were actually 13 uh, collection boxes essentially is what they were 13 vessels and and as people would gather or or come through the temple um, oftentimes scribes and Pharisees and anybody they would come and they would place their money inside these collection boxes. Now, I don't think they had dollar bills like we do today. So, so keep in mind, when they're putting their, their money inside these collection boxes, it's making a noise. You hear the sound of the money hitting that vessel as it's placed in there. And so Jesus oftentimes, we see in Luke chapter 21, he would kind of hide away and, 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 and be at a distance and he would watch as scribes and Pharisees would walk by and anybody else um, in the area would come through the court of the women. Jesus would watch very intently as, as men and women would place their, their money inside these collection boxes. And every time money was placed in a box, you would hear the rattle or the clanging of that vessel. And you could usually tell when somebody had a lot of money because they would put those coins inside that vessel and you could imagine the, the clanging sound as coins hit um, inside those vessels and, and it makes such a loud noise. And so Jesus is watching intently as scribes and Pharisees, and keep in mind, these guys, they want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They, wanna, they want people to recognize them. So when they walk by that vessel and they throw their change in there, they're throwing it in there with pride. They throw it in there loud. I mean, I, I just get this picture. It's not just a nice little dropping in of their money. Uh, this, is, this is a group of people that are like, they've got their money there and they are trying to throw in and make as much noise as possible so everybody in the temple knows these people are rich. They have money. And look, they're giving a lot of money to the cause. And so Jesus is watching intently in Luke 21 and a scribe and a Pharisee who they, they want to be noticed, they throw their money in and here comes this poor widow. And she walks up to the collection box and Jesus already knows her heart. He already knows that she has very little. And yet this woman comes up to the collection box and she has two little mites. Now, let me, let me give you just a little bit of a context so you know how much she actually had. She had two coins, two small little coins, 
and the two mites were worth one ninety-sixth of a denarius. Now, that doesn't make sense because we don't know what a denarius is worth, but let me tell you, one denarius is roughly worth 17 cents. One denarius is worth roughly 17 cents. And this poor widow, she brings two mites, which is one ninety-sixth of 17 cents, all right? So you, you do the math. Uh, if you need to get out your phones and figure out how much that is, um, it's not a lot, okay? But it's all that she had. And so when this woman came up to the collection box, keep in mind, she didn't have a bunch of coins to make a loud sound. It's very likely that when she dropped in her two mites, not a single person noticed that she even gave, except Jesus. Jesus is watching her intently as she gives. She doesn't just give, she doesn't give out of her, her extra. She doesn't give out of her, um, the, the overflow that God had blessed her with. This woman came, she came to that collection box and she gave all she had. It was very little, but in Jesus's eyes, it was a lot. She gave her all. Now that, that coin, those two coins that she dropped didn't likely make much noise. Probably nobody around even noticed that she gave to the temple. But guess what? She wasn't giving to the temple. She was giving to God. She worshiped. That was her expression of worship to the Lord. There's a third story in the Old Testament. We might know this story. It's in Genesis chapter 22. It's two individuals, father and son, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's the father. Isaac is the son. Uh, Abraham, we, we know about Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham um, is, is called by God to leave his country, his household, everything that he knows. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm not going to give you a map. I'm not going to GPS it for you. Um, I, that's not what God said. I'm just kind of helping you understand. Um, but, but God said, I'm going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. I want you to trust me and follow me. So Abraham leaves everything that's comfortable, everything that's familiar to him. He takes his family with him, packs up, and they begin to head to the land of Canaan. Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham in a vision. God speaks to Abraham and, or Abram, and he says, I'm going to give you a son. And he tells him in Genesis 15 that he's going to be the father of many nations. Now, you have to keep in mind at this point, Abraham is, is pretty old in age, as is his wife, um, way past the years of, of having a son. And, and yet God comes to Abram in this vision and says, I'm going to give you a son, um, and, and you are, and he, in this vision, he says, Abraham, I want you to go outside, and it's dark. It's not like they're out in the city where there's bright lights. He goes out, he's in the wilderness, he goes outside, and, and so you can imagine, you can see all of the stars that God has placed in the sky, and God says to Abram, Abraham, I want you to look up at the skies, and I want you to see. Can you see all of those stars? I want you to begin to count them. And Abraham's probably thinking, one, two, three. I, I can't count all of the stars. There are way too many stars for me to count. And God said to Abram, Abram, so shall your descendants be. That's in Genesis chapter 15. Again, keep in mind, Abram and Sarah, his wife, are both past the years of having a son. Eventually, God will give Abram and Sarah a son in their old age, and so you can imagine, this is the promised son of God, how special, how unique, how valuable that child is to Abraham and Sarah. 
because it was a son that came to Sarah. She was barren. She was unable to have children, yet God opened her womb, and in her old age, she was able to have a son that God had promised. And we also know that God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and the only way that's possible is not only for him to to have a son, but for there to be multiple descendants that come out of that. And so we get to Genesis 22. I give you that context because it helps us understand then what happens in Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abram, Abraham again, and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, you know, the one that I promised you, the one that came to you in your old age, the one that, that is valuable to you and very unique and special because it is the promised son of God. And God said, Abraham, I want you to take that son of yours, Isaac, and I want you to go to the top of the mountain, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice unto me. Um, as a father, I think I would raise up the flag and say, oh, whoa, wait a second. What do you mean? Offer up my son as a sacrifice. But if you read Genesis 22, there doesn't, I'm certain there, Abraham's human, just like you and me. I'm certain there are some things going through Abraham's mind, like why God and, and what's your purpose behind this? And are you really sure that, am, am I, I if, if I'm Abraham, I want to make sure, am I really hearing from God before I follow through with this command. And so we read in Genesis chapter 22, it doesn't appear that there's, Abraham's not questioning God, he's not arguing God, he's not going and seeking advice from other people. He hears the voice of God and he's obedient. So the next morning, it says he rose up early the next morning, him and Isaac, they gathered together the wood for the sacrifice. They gathered together the fire to get the, fire, to get the sacrifice going. They gathered all the supplies they needed. Abraham, Isaac, and, and Abraham's servants, they began to make their journey up the mountain, and they're walking. At one point in time, Isaac turns and says, you know, Dad, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Isaac, and Abraham says to Isaac, the Lord will provide. And so we get to a point, though, in Genesis 22 where, and this is where I want us to focus on this morning, when Abraham and Isaac, they get to a place on the mountain, and they stop, and Abraham turns around and he looks at his servants, and he says to his servants, I want you guys to stay here. I want you to stay here on this part of the mountain while I and the lad continue to go up to worship. See what Abraham just did? He's getting ready to offer up his son as a sacrifice because God asked him to give up his son. And he says to his servants, what I'm about ready to do is worship. I think we have kind of this distorted understanding, uh, I think here in uh, American Christianity of what worship really is. Sometimes we we, we think of it as what just took place at the beginning of the service. That's a part of worship. Uh, sometimes we think it's, it's songs and music only. That's an aspect and an element of worship. But there is so much more to worship. We see in those three stories, in Acts chapter 16, Luke chapter 21, in Genesis chapter 22, we get a glimpse of what worship truly is. Abraham's preference was not to sacrifice his son. But he was more interested in obedience to God than personal preference. There's three things that I want to share with you real briefly this morning, and, and hopefully these will be words of challenge. And, and, and again, we are, as we begin to um, 
look at these three points that will be up here on the screen in just a moment. Uh, we are a, a brand new church, and we are still, you know, we're exploring and trying to understand what does it look like for us to worship Christ with passion. So what do we learn from these stories? Number one, passionate worshipers don't worship based on how they feel. Instead, their worship is in response to the worthiness of God. I want to say that again. Passionate worshipers don't worship based on how they feel. Instead, their worship is in response to the worthiness of God. The, the, the truth is, if every one of us here in this room, if we said, I'm only going to worship when I feel good, or I'm only going to worship when things are going well for me, or I'm only going to worship when God does for me what I want God to do for me, the reality is uh, most of us would only worship 30 to 40% of the time. Because let, let's be honest, our emotions are always changing. Today might be a good day for some of us. But yesterday might have been a terrible day, or maybe on your way in here this morning, um, maybe things didn't go so well. Uh, maybe, I, I hope no one had a flat tire, but if you had a flat tire on your way in this morning, or, or the kids weren't you know, um, moving as quickly as you would hope they would move, that can really throw your day off. And let me tell you, if we worship based on how we feel, first of all, that's not worship. Instead, worship has to do with our response to the fact that he, God, is always worthy of our worship. It doesn't matter if I'm having the worst day of my life or if I'm having the best day of my life. He is always worthy of our worship. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. God is, God is fixed. He does not change Yes, our emotions change. Yes, our days look different. When you think about Paul and Silas, they weren't having a very great day from human perspective, right? They've been thrown in prison. They've been beaten. They've been flogged. They've been ridiculed. They had every right from a human perspective to say, you know, God, what's going on here? And to throw this pity party and complain. But instead, they recognize my worship has nothing to do with how my day's going, how my emotions are. Worship has to do with he is worthy always worthy of our worship. He always deserves our worship because he is God. Passionate worshipers don't worship based on how they feel. Instead, their worship is in response to the worthiness of God. If we get that, if, if we embrace that truth and we recognize that, you know what, even if I'm having a bad day, I can still come into the presence of God. I can still give him thanks. And, and to be honest, I would say to all of us, myself included, if, if we've had a rough day, if it was a rough start to the morning, if work didn't go well, if we got bad news, instead of sitting back and, and feeling sorry for ourselves, I would actually suggest to every single one of us, in those moments, take time to worship God. Give him thanks for who he is. Give him thanks because he is on the throne. Give him thanks because we aren't citizens here on earth. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And we should give gratitude, give him thanks for that. So we should never worship based on how we feel. Instead, our worship, worship should always be in response to the worthiness of God. Everyone agree with that, amen? Amen? Number two, passionate worshipers never seek the attention of the crowd. Instead, their primary aim is devotion to Jesus. Think about the story in Luke chapter 21. 
the Pharisees and the scribes, when they, when they get their money out of their pocket, I don't have a lot of change in my pocket. I'm not even sure I have any change in my pocket. I have one quarter. Um, this might be more reflective of the poor widow, all right? <laughs> um, but, but imagine when, when the um, scribes and the Pharisees, their desire, you can read about it. You can read earlier on, in, 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 I believe in chapter 20, the scribes and the Pharisees, their aim, their desire was for people to notice them. Jesus will talk about, he will say, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the scribes who, who go out into the middle um, of, of the, the drive or go out into the middle of the city and, and they begin to pray out loud, very loudly, so people will hear them and see them. They weren't authentic in their worship. Their desire was for people to notice them. And, and so when we, when we think about worship, passionate worshipers don't seek the attention of the crowd. Instead, our aim is to always, um, excuse me, our aim is devotion to Jesus Christ and him alone. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, their desire is to throw that coin on there. They want that noise to be heard. They want people's eyes to look, wow, they gave a lot. Look at what they have. That was their aim. That was their desire. The poor widow, her only aim, her only passion, she didn't care if people noticed. To be honest, she didn't have enough for people to notice. When she dropped in her coin, that might have been the only sound that hit the vessel. But Jesus noticed her. Because her aim, her passion, her desire was to please Christ and Christ alone. And so when we think about passionate worshipers, the poor widow's only aim was, to com- was complete surrender to God. And, and I want to make this point. This is, this is very key because I think when we, when we think about worship, especially the corporate worship setting, and I'm, when I'm talking about worship today, I'm talking about both individual and corporate worship times. Um, We should be engaging in individual worship times. We should set aside time where we are worshiping Christ, where we're um, pursuing his presence on our own. And and the reality is, if we don't do it on our own in our private time, I, I very doubt that we will do it passionately in the corporate setting. If we're afraid and we're fearful and we're embarrassed to do it in our individual private time, reality is we're not gonna do it when we come together corporately. But, but when we worship, our aim should never be to seek the attention. We, should not, we shouldn't even worry about when we come into the corporate worship setting, our concern um, should not be, I wonder what they think. If I lift my hands, are they going to think I'm weird? Um, if, if I sing or I clap, um, even if you clap off beat, that's okay. Um, if I clap, I know some people just don't clap because they can't keep a beat. So that's fine. Um, you know, help us out and don't clap. But, um, and some people don't sing out loud because they can't carry a tune. I know a few of those. Not in here, not in here. But I do know some folks that, that can't do that. But when we come, when we gather corporately to worship. I want you to hear this. We worship an audience of one. When we gather together on Sunday morning, collectively, corporately, we aren't here to put on a show. We aren't here to um, impress our neighbors. We're not here to say, man, I want them to see how passionate I am or how, how engaged in worship I am. That's not why we gather together. We come here on Sunday morning and we stand before and we worship an audience of one. And passionate worshipers never seek the attention of the crowd. Instead, our aim is devotion to Jesus Christ. You don't, your desire should not be to please me, the pastor, the person sitting next to you, or the crowd, but instead we worship to bring honor and glory to God and God alone. That is what it looks like to be passionate in our worship. Number three, finally, 
Passionate worshipers are concerned not with personal preferences. Instead, their interest is obedience to Christ and Christ alone. Um, When you think about the story of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, let me just be real honest with you. Abraham's preference, I know it doesn't say it, but he's human, he was a father, and I'm certain he had the same feelings and emotions that every single one of us in this room would have had. Abraham's preference was not to sacrifice his son. His preference as a human father was was to hold on to and to keep his son. But Abraham's preference did not trump his obedience to God. Yes, his preference was to hold on to his son because he loved him. It was his son that came to him in his old age. It was the son that God promised him. And it was the son that was going to enable him to be the father of many nations. But Abraham recognized that obedience was much more important than his personal preference. I'm certain not going to ask, but I'm certain every single one of us in this room here today, if I were to say, take a few moments and break out into small groups and start talking about what some of your personal preferences are, we all have them. And I'm certain some of us in this room, and and this has been going on for years, some of us like it a little bit warmer in here, um, and some of us are cold right now. Um, There's some of us that that prefer um, no change of seasons, Um, And then you're in the wrong state, by the way, if that's you. And then there's some of us that prefer all seasons. There's some of us that prefer hymns. There's some of us that prefer praise choruses. There's some of us, and so you see, all of us have preferences, but when we are passionately worshiping Jesus Christ, we are not concerned with those preferences. Our only aim, our only desire, our only concern is obedience to Jesus Christ. And so, though we all have personal preferences, as passionate worshipers, we are called to lay those preferences down for the sake of others and most importantly for the sake of obedience. Um, Let me just uh, take a moment um, in, in kind of the conclusion of this sermon. I've given you three things to ponder, to reflect on, to think about um, I, I've kind of given you the, the qualities of what it looks like for us to be passionate worshipers of Jesus Christ, but I also want you uh, to be able to walk out of here today with some very practical pieces that, that you can begin to um, even engage in so you can be more reflective what, of what it looks like to be a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ. Let me make this statement, though, first. Though we... We, we can't always gauge passion by outward expressions. Um, that, that's just a reality. Um, we can come together here. I, I cannot gauge one's passion based on how demonstrative or, or not demonstrative they are in worship. Be, because the concern is not really outward expressions. I could, I could have the hardest heart known to mankind and be angry with God, but I can still come in here and lift my hands and put on a show. So we cannot always gauge one's passion based on outward expression. Though I would suggest at some level, we can certainly, our outward expression at some level can and does often reflect our passion. 
this, the opposite is true then. So if I am, if I am um, serving Christ and I love him with all of my heart, that very well can and should lead to me expressing my praise and my worship. And that might come through the clapping of my hands. That might come through the lifting of my hands. That might come through me sitting here on the front row and just kneeling and being in God's presence. The reality is there are so many different forms of, of outward expression that can be a reflection of our hearts, our heart that is passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to just put a few things up here for you to, uh, if you are a, and I'm going to add some that, that are not on the screen. So if you are a note taker at all, I think there's a place in your, um, on the front of your bulletin. If you want to jot some of these things down, uh, I would encourage you to, because here is where, this is where, really where we can walk away and, and begin to implement these things in our life so we can better uh, be better passionate worshipers of Jesus Christ. So how do we become a passionate worshiper? First of all, time alone with God is critical. I already said, if we, if we don't spend time in God's presence alone, when we come together on Sunday morning, the reality is we are not going to be passionately pursuing him. We, we can't just passionately pursue God on Sunday morning and that's it. We have to be spending time alone with him where we are pursuing his presence passionately. Number two, um, one thing that we can do is listen to and sing Christ-exalting songs, songs that honor Christ, songs that lift up Jesus Christ. Um, one of the things that you can do, and, and we live in a world where we have access to songs uh, at our fingertips. When you get in your car, uh, you can turn on the radio station K-Love or uh, 97.9 or 98.7 Christian music, and you can listen to and you can sing along um, these songs that exalt and honor Christ. That is one way that we begin to pursue Christ and worship him with passion. Another thing that we can do is, is pray with your family. Uh, pray with your spouse. Pray with um, your children. Pray with a friend. Um, again, if you do that at home, when you gather together on Sunday morning, and when you come together in the corporate worship setting, when we spend time, five minutes praying, praying for needs or praying for this community, it, we're going to do it with much more passion because we've already been spending time in God's presence. Does that make sense? If we don't do it at home, we're never going to engage him with passion here. Consider the needs of others. Um, talking about the laying down of our personal preferences. Giving God thanks daily. One of the most practical things we can do when we wake up, even if the day starts off terrible, one of the most practical things we can do is just simply give thanks to God. God, thank you for you, who you are. Thank you for allowing me to breathe today. Thank you for allowing me to be here today. Thank you for your faithfulness. So many ways we can become a passionate worshiper. In the corporate setting, one of the things you can do is you can lift your hands if you're comfortable doing that. If that's something you're not comfortable doing uh, in the corporate worship setting, do it in your individual worship time. Lift up your hands to Jesus as you listen to those songs. Don't do it while you're driving, okay? Two hands on the wheel, 10 and 2, all right? Um, unless you're in the passenger seat or in the back seat, feel free to lift your hands as much as you want. But if you're driving, don't, all right? Um, because if you get pulled over and you say, well, my pastor told me to do this, I'm going to deny it, all right? Um, take various postures in the corporate worship setting again. Uh, and this is what we often do. We ask you to stand and sing, but maybe, maybe for that particular day, um, you're gonna sit, you're gonna kneel, you're gonna lift your hands, and you're just gonna spend time in God's presence. That's fine. 
Uh, maybe it's uh, coming up to the altar and praying during the worship time. That's fine. Maybe it's clapping your hands. If you are a great, you know, clapper, then by, by all means, clap your hands uh, and, and join us for worship and giving. Every single Sunday, um, we have a chance to express our worship to God when we give. That's exactly what the woman did, the poor widow. What did she do? She gave everything that she had because she wasn't giving to the temple. She wasn't giving to a building project there at the temple. She was giving to God and her heart was in right relationship with the Lord. A couple other things that are not up on the screen that you may want to jot down, and these are probably even more practical than what you see up here. One thing you can do is you can set reminders on your phone. A lot of our phones today have some great reminder apps or um, things that you, you can put in your phone that will go off, that will vibrate, that will make loud sounds, that will sing songs, whatever you want it to do. But one of the most practical things we can do to, to engage God passionately in worship is we can just set a, set a reminder on our phone where maybe five minutes every, every four hours or five to ten minutes every four hours, we just pause to think on God, to think about him, to worship him, to express our thanks to him. Practice thankfulness. I already mentioned that up here. One of the things you can do, um, if you're not sure how to worship um, or, or how to express worship to, to, uh, to God, one of the things I would challenge you to do is to open up the book of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. Guess what? That's our prayer language that's been given to us. That was the prayer language of God's people in that day. That was the worship language. And so a lot of the songs that we sing today will emerge or come out of the Psalms. So one of the things I would encourage you to do is to open up the Psalms and, and read them out loud. Um, you may be by yourself. That's fine. Read them out loud so you hear you hear how um, you are expressing uh, your gratitude and your thanks to God. And then finally, um, again, you may not be comfortable clapping or lifting your hands here, um, but maybe that's something you do at home. When you turn on the music, when nobody else is watching, remember it's an audience of one anyway, so that's a great place to practice. Maybe that's when you go and you clap your hands, you lift your hands to him or you kneel um, or you just simply sit in his presence. But God is calling us. He wants us and I pray as a church, my heart is that we would be devoted to passionately worshiping Jesus Christ. He deserves it. Not because I feel good today, not because I'm having a good day or not having a good day. He deserves our worship. He is worthy of our worship. And again, that can look so many different ways. That can be, um, that expression can look so many different ways. But I want to challenge us all to engage him passionately. Would you stand with me this morning?